These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and the plandemic, scamdemic, get an online bandemic era has not been easy on anyone. We saw coordination between the big biomedical industrial complex governments around the world and corporate media that should worry us all as to just how centralized and absolute the global system is when it wants to flex its muscles. Legacy media hyped up the fear porn through a 24-7 death counter in our faces and constantly reminded us of just how bad we were for not having full blind trust in the pre-approved experts. Hospitals got in line to follow harsh protocols handed down from on high and amplified COVID numbers in a pay-to-play scheme as many of the masked masses said goodbye to isolated loved ones over Zoom. Nearly worldwide lockdowns were implemented and small businesses were not allowed to operate while the McDonald's drive through line had never been longer, contributing to one of the largest transfers of wealth to the billionaire class we've ever seen. Doctors, scientists, and medical journalists who did break ranks with the one true narrative were censored, demonized, and stripped of their credentials. And of course, we were coerced, pressured, and shamed to take an untested vaccine of which the true fallout still isn't fully known. It all worked towards a dystopian police state nightmare trial run that makes even the most creative Hollywood filmmakers jealous. But in the eye of the cytokine storm were some high-profile people like today's guest, Dr. Robert Malone, who did try to align with the truth rather than the system's shaky story. And regardless of his credentials in this area, he was attacked as hard as anyone. Most of us who stepped outside the mainstream bubble should be well aware of Dr. Malone, but for the uninitiated, he got his medical degree from the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, completed the Harvard Medical School Fellowship as a global clinical research scholar, and was scientifically trained at the University of California at Davis, the University of California at San Diego, and the Salk Institute Molecular Biology and Virology Laboratories. He served as an assistant and associate professor of pathology and surgery at the University of California at Davis, the University of Maryland, and the Armed Forces University of Health Sciences. He has approximately 100 scientific publications with over 12,000 citations of his work, as well as being an internationally recognized scientist slash physician and the original inventor of mRNA vaccination as a technology, 
DNA vaccination, and multiple non-viral DNA and RNA-slash-mRNA platform delivery technologies. He holds numerous fundamental domestic and foreign patents in the fields of gene delivery, delivery formulations, and vaccines, including for fundamental DNA and RNA-slash-mRNA vaccine technologies. But that's not all, folks. He also has a brand new book out called Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming that not only chronicles his story and expert analysis of what happened, but is also filled with essays and chapters from some of the brightest medical minds that were willing to break ranks with the establishment during the COVID crisis. He came from the belly of the beast, had the balls to speak the truth, and it's a pleasure to have him here, the medical tyranny teacher, mass formation psychosis suggester, and thorn in the side of the big system, Dr. Robert Malone. Welcome to the higher side. Hi, Greg. That's quite an introduction. Well, I am honored, man, and your credentials are very impressive, and me being a guy who's typically skeptical of the mainstream machine, I was very lucky to have people like yourself and other experts like Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, and Gert Vanden Borsch to look towards and show my own friends and family to say, hey, these guys' opinions are as professional as anyone, and clearly not everybody agrees with all this stuff, and that was crucial. I also really enjoyed the book. Lots of very important info in there. Your first chapter lays it right out, titled How I Got Red-Pilled and the Gradual Reveal. And I think we've both gone over the nitty-gritty medical details of COVID ad nauseum at this point. But as a person who did get red-pilled and now writes about the World Economic Forum even in the book, what would you say about that red-pilling process if you were addressing people that haven't seen past their trust in the establishment, the media, this corporate medical nexus, and their real intentions? So you're kind of touching on the biggest problem of all, which is how do you break through people that are completely wrapped up in the narrative, that are in this state of what seems like hypnosis, where they cannot hear information. They aren't willing to encounter information that will cause them to have what the psychiatrists and psychologists call cognitive dissonance, where they have to encounter ideas that are uncomfortable and unfamiliar to them. How do you break through to those folks? And you're there, you talk about me being in the belly of the beast, but as somebody who grew up in California, born in Palo Alto, raised along the beaches of Goleta. When I've gone back to California now over the last few years, I hardly recognize the place. Mm. California is, as a culture, very much wrapped up in the official narrative and globalist kind of frame of reference in a way that I find stunning for a state and a people, in my experience, that has historically valued personal freedom. I agree. So what do you say to them about this journey that they may or may not be willing to take? How do you break through? In my case, it's been a gradual stepwise progression. And we've all been subjected to a sort of a ratchet where things get normalized over time increasingly. Things, propaganda, censorship, other things that we used to think only existed under the CCP, Chinese Communist Party model, now have become normalized here in the United States and in Europe and throughout the Western world. I remember vividly 
early on last fall, we had a couple of rallies in Hawaii, that being the physicians associated with the medical freedom movement, because a couple of our colleagues were being subjected to efforts to remove their licenses and their ability to practice medicine. And so a number of us flew out to Maui and then over to Oahu to try to support our colleagues in the medical freedom movement in Hawaii. And I gave a talk in a park on Oahu in which I spoke about how it had not been so long ago that I had felt sorry for the people of China who had to live in an environment in which their internet was carefully controlled, their access to information. All they had available was the endorsed political propaganda. Everything was filtered and they were subjected to all of these really kind of mind control methods the you know automatic identification through biometrics of their personal identity the constant surveilling of whatever they were corresponding and yet here we are and it's become normalized here in the west and in the united states now just a couple of days ago the G20 organization has announced together with the president of the United States that they want to move forward with global health passports. Right. In, in an environment in which you will not be able to travel if you're there in San Diego, outside of the United States, you potentially would not be able to cross the Mexican border unless you had a digital health passport and a digital ID that would identify you as having complied with whatever the policies were that would come down from the World Health Organization. That's the kind of thing that's in play right now. And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is actively advocated. And so I think that for those that have been very captured by the corporate media and by the narrative and by these amazingly powerful psychological management tools that have been developed and deployed, ranging from nudge technology, which is so widespread now that we don't even question it, through to the constant monitoring of even private channels and private Google sites in which people are being monitored and censored. That is the kind of thing that eventually breaks through to a number of people. And then when it does, they often say, well, it's all for the better. You know, for instance, Mr. Obama has been promoting this logic now for well over a decade that democracy is threatened by information and it's necessary to censor in order to preserve democracy. Last I checked, that's kind of a complete inversion of the original intent of the founders. And I think complete inversion of the intent of most of us. So for those colleagues, friends, um, fellow travelers, listeners here in your show, 
that are not ready to really question the information coming from the CDC and the World Health Organization, even though the New York Times itself has said that the CDC has become politicized and that it has been withholding information about the COVID crisis and the safety of the vaccines all the way through, even if they're not ready to question that, I suggest that they might want to just take a moment and think about the world as they're experiencing it now and ask themselves, is this really the world that I want to leave to my children? Is this the trajectory that I want to be on? And I guess maybe I had the benefit of growing up in the 60s and 70s in California in a school system that really sought to educate and prepare students for the future. And in my case, because I was tracked as a gifted and talented student, something that is not really allowed now in the California education system. When I was in fourth and fifth grade, I was reading Orwell and the death of Socrates and all of Shakespeare and those kinds of things. And I was exposed to Brave New World in 1984 and Animal Farm and all those core texts that warn us about the totalitarian future. And so perhaps I was a little more sensitized and aware as these things were rolling out. But for the general audience, as I always say, I don't know, I don't purport to offer the only truth or even to suggest that you believe everything that I say. I think you should question everything. I think you need to think for yourself. And my mission over the last two years has become one of trying to help people to think for themselves and help them to access information. I've spent countless numbers of hours on podcasts just trying to coach people on the fundamentals of the technology involved in the RNA vaccines because it's so confusing for so many people. Mm-hmm. Well said. I certainly agree. It was easy to sit back and feel sorry for Chinese citizens and buy into this illusion of a censorship-free society and or internet without any, let's call it truth curation, but not so much anymore. And I'm glad you brought up the G20 and the world leaders all coming to the agreement that digital health certificates and vaccine passports are necessary even now. When a lot of people think we've weathered the storm, things are open again, we're past it. If they didn't lose their job, if they navigated it all right, it feels like the pressure is pretty much gone. But I think that's just temporary when you hear about meetings and commitments like this. And who knows what the who might say is needed in the future to travel. But you bring up Orwell, Brave New World, and having read books like that. So I got to ask you a tough question. Now, I know you've addressed the controlled opposition concern in other interviews, and you write about it in the book too, and it's masterful to say, hey, don't worry so much about me as an individual, just listen to what I'm saying, think for yourself, and do your own research. And honestly, to me, that's all I really need any person to say. But your background in all of this does go deep with long-standing involvement with the biodefense sector of the U.S. military pharmaceutical industrial complex. I've heard you say in other interviews, you've been deeply embedded in the whole enterprise. Your business partner was a CIA agent and a leading expert in gain-of-function bioweaponry. 
These are reasons why some people might be skeptical of a guy with your resume, but I'm curious why you weren't skeptical sooner. If you just look at the history of the CIA or even the history of these companies, you know, if a person Googles who are the most heavily fined companies in history, and then you remove all the banks, your top six are BP, Volkswagen, Pfizer, Merck, Glasgow, SmithKline, and Johnson & Johnson. How could anyone legitimately trust these medical corporations with scandal after scandal, payout after payout? I'm thankful you're speaking out now. I'm a big fan and nobody's perfect. But now it sounds like you did have some early context and the laundry list of reasons to be skeptical of these organizations goes back decades, doesn't it? If that's how you want to see the world, again, it's not about me. I had through a series of events, going back to my time at the Salk, when I got caught in this ugly patent battle between the Salk Institute and the University of California, San Diego, over what I had created as a young man, 28 years old. And I ended up with a nervous breakdown and post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. And I had, for instance, my mentor who became head of the Salk, told me directly that if I left at that point in time, I would never get an NIH grant. And by God, I didn't. I've had to work at the fringes in order to make my living and work in a way that I stayed below the radar. I really didn't um, have ever a real option to become a mainstream academic. And I've had a series of events that led me down a path that did bring me into the biodefense sector after the anthrax attacks. I had started a business that currently operates in San Diego called Inovio. And at the time, it was a Norwegian company based in part on technology that I created at University of Maryland. And the Norwegian investors pulled back after the planes hit the towers and the Pentagon. I was living in Rockville outside of DC at the time. And I was left with no income, no way forward. The company I just started had basically contracted and collapsed because the investors pulled back. And a friend of mine opened a door to my joining a company that had just received the contract for all biodefense medical countermeasures for the Department of Defense. This is Dineport Vaccine Company up in Frederick, Maryland, which is right outside of USAMRIN, the nation's biodefense capital. And so I was brought into that world and have done my best with a firm belief that there was a mission there that needed to be addressed, that mission being protecting the populace and protecting the warfighter from the double threats of emerging infectious disease, as well as engineered biopathogens. And I've lived in that world for quite a while. I know it very well. And that is a world that is very much enriched in people that are linked to the intelligence community. You can't work in that business and not have those contacts. Now, you've made a little bit of a misstatement. I think you were crossing Daryl Galloway, who once was my business partner, 
after he retired from U.S. Army and had been CIA trained, and another gentleman, Michael Callahan, who was somebody that I've collaborated with and co-published with, particularly on Zika, who was the guy that called me from Wuhan on January 4th of 2020. But that's a small detail. I think it's a fair question. And my response is, focus on the information I'm providing. You know, we've had a long history of whistleblowers, essentially, that come to a point where they encounter things that they think are just fundamentally wrong. And they've decided to speak out. And I'm really one of those people. This is not the first time that I've been a whistleblower. I destroyed my career in gene therapy by speaking out about what I knew concerning the death of Jesse Gelsinger this young man that was essentially killed by one of the leading gene therapy researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Jim Wilson. And I was taking bioethics training at the time, and my professor mentor, after I told him what I knew about what had transpired there, told me that I had a moral obligation to speak out and to speak to the press about what I knew. And I did, knowing that it would damage or destroy my career in that sector, and it did but I was a key source for a number of people, including a key reporter from the New York Times. And that story did become widely circulated and did cause major changes in the gene therapy sector and industry. So I've been through this before and I recovered. I had to rebuild my career in a different way. And so when it came to this point, and I could see that the things that I had been trained on for years and years and years, the things that I'd practiced having to do with biomedical ethics and norms in clinical and non-clinical research were being breached. Not only were they being breached and disregarded, but it was involving the specific technology that I gave birth to in the late 80s. I suddenly found myself in a position where, again, I had to make a choice. Keep my mouth shut, like most of my colleagues did. Or speak out and say, this is wrong, what is going on? And this is going to put people at risk. And then, when having done that, just spoken truth. For instance, on the Brett Weinstein podcast, Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch. Mm -hmm. And then experiencing... Rather than a, you know, intellectual discussion, a dialogue about, well, you know, what am I saying? And is it true? And should we address these things? What came back was this very unilateral, heavy-handed, totalitarian response in the press and in the government that essentially sought to deny my even having a voice, even though this was a technology that I had helped give birth to. And I was speaking about things that are widely acknowledged throughout my industry as enormously damaging. And then that kind of set me down a road. Having experienced that, then you have a challenge. Do you shut up, which is what they want? Or do you find ways to break through their firewall of controlled information 
censorship, defamation, all these little tricks that they've developed over decades. And in my case, I chose to try to break through by just throwing myself into alternative media, into the podcast. And I don't know how many hundreds of podcasts I've done. Mm -hmm. At first, I would take a podcast with anybody. Each podcast is a unique community. It was a fascinating journey. And some of them I kind of wished, you know, as they were rolling out that I hadn't accepted that one. Oh, no. Uh, but, <laughs> but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And so this storyline of whether I'm controlled opposition is that is a term that has often been weaponized. And it often comes to fore at this stage of political movements. And one of the things that's been kind of fascinating part of this journey is that it's now documented that one of the key people that were pushing this storyline is a serial infiltrator and disruptor, was very involved in disrupting the American trucker protest movement mm. and has been extremely divisive in the medical freedom community. And this storyline of promoting that I or others are controlled opposition, it turns out has been a favorite historic weapon. In the case of this woman, that I'm gonna withhold her name here, but for instance, your readers can look up the Themis report and there are others out there right now about this individual. She's been very effective in multiple protest movements. She has ties to people that are being disrupting protest movements in Europe. And just to put the icing on the cake, I don't know if you know Mickey Willis. Yes. He's become a personal friend. Mm. Mickey has, as this was happening, I spoke to him and he said that, as you may know, he originally comes from what we would call the left in Ojai Valley. And then when he put out Plandemic, they basically ran him out of town. But he has a long history of being involved in protest movements. And his comment right off the bat was this language of controlled opposition has been historically used and weaponized to destroy these communities for decades now. Mm -hmm. And so my position on this, it's a little bit like, are you controlled opposition is kind of like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? <laughs> in a world in which, and I'm very familiar with this, the people that are in the intelligence community that are CIA operatives, not the analysts, they're all trained to lie. Michael Callahan is a trained liar. And it's, if you're going to interface with these people, you have to have that constantly in mind. And you can often triangulate truth and derive insight and meaning, but you have to be very, very aware that their ethics about integrity, truth, and transparency are completely different from yours and mine. Mm -hmm. But that's a world that I necessity because I believed in the unmet need, the mission to protect all of us from 
emerging infectious disease and bioweapons, and in particular to protect, because that's been my base, my funding base, and that's been my primary customer, to protect the warfighter. Mm -hmm. The modern warfighter faces a very challenging landscape right now, and the people planning for that environment. And just to kind of illustrate the nature of the threat, not I'm so opposed to the fear porn that gets exploited all the time, you know, notably by CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, and, and the main corporate outlets. But the truth is that infectious disease has been used as a biologic weapon for centuries. Centuries? Um, you know, well, here, for instance, think it through. American Indians were given blankets that had been used by people that had been exposed, that had active smallpox. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's biowarfare. There were a series of pathogens that were developed and weaponized for biowarfare purposes through the end of World War II. And this is just a fun fact to have in mind. <laughs> the U.S. government is on track, the Department of Defense, and it's important to remember that Tony Fauci isn't just the NIAD. Tony Fauci sits on top of the entire biodefense establishment, DOD and HHS, okay? But that enterprise is on track, if nothing goes wrong, using more traditional vaccine technology to be able to deploy vaccines that are safe and effective, hopefully, for all of the known warfare, biowarfare pathogens through the end of World War II, they will have vaccines for all of those on the current schedule by 2050, a full century after they were deployed. Here's another fun fact. And this will come out in Bobby Kennedy's next book in more detail. The Japanese notoriously had a very advanced biowarfare program, and they deployed some of their biowarfare agents on the Chinese during the Second World War. And I'm going to give you some little insights into that that you'll learn more about in Bobby's book. They had a large prisoner facility in which they kept the prisoners well-fed. You may recall that the Japanese internment camps were notorious for starving and overworking prisoners to death. But in this particular camp, they kept them well-fed. They were in cells, and the cells had little holes, and they would stick their arms out through those holes and be inoculated with whatever the biopathogen was that was being developed. And then, now this is a little shocking, but I, I'm intentionally sharing it because I want you to understand the ethics. They would take those prisoners, and they would autopsy them when they were alive. Oh. Because they believed that if they killed them first, then it would bias the scientific results. Now, what happened is after the end of World War II, that program and its personnel was functionally divided between the United States and what became the People's Republic of China. Some of the scientists went to work for the Chinese and carried on as a biowarfare program for China. And just like Werner von Braun and the missile scientists from Germany were imported into the United States and gave rise to our NASA programs. 
a number of those scientists from the old Japanese program were brought to USAMRID in Frederick, Maryland, and set up the biowarfare program here for the United States military. The point is that I, unbeknownst to me, there has been a longstanding undercurrent within the biowarfare and then biodefense community in the United States that sees ethics as something that's very fungible. You know, it's an ethics of very utilitarian principles, the ends justify the means, and its root comes from originally importing and embedding these Japanese scientists into the American biowarfare program. And this has, for me, also been a gradual reveal to, as I tunneled in more and more and learned more and more and was more actively involved in the biodefense program, I came to be told I'm not saying anything that is classified, although I was granted secret clearance, not top secret or, or any of the more advanced ones mm. for DOD. But it's important to understand that there is information suggesting that we spent far more on biowarfare in the United States than we spent on developing thermonuclear weapons. A case can be made that modern biology as we know it, molecular biology and virology, are largely a product of huge, huge investment in biowarfare by the United States government. The leaders of the American Society for Microbiology for many years were also the leaders in our biowarfare program. So we built in deployed, tested in the field, a binary weapon, a biologic warfare weapon that was so potent that it would kill tank commanders and crews before if the Russians, if the Soviet Union had engaged in a blitzkrieg, which was one of the major threats hanging over Western Europe, those tank commanders would be dead by the time they reached the English Channel. Jesus. It's part of what is attributed in shifting the balance of power that eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dropping of the Berlin Wall. That is one version of that story that's very different from Ronald Reagan as the hero mm -hmm. in Star Wars. So there's this long, long history that I had not been aware of that is interwoven with the history of modern molecular biology. And of course, there in San Diego, you're in a hub of this uh, <laughs> technology space. You know, I just kind of grew up in it, not really questioning it. I had chosen to be a physician. My father had worked in high energy systems and came up in a, an essential way with a lot of the triggering technology that's used to explode modern thermonuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. My father-in-law was the head of the Special Projects Division of Raytheon in Goleta. And he was my mentor for many years. Raytheon Special Projects is basically their CIA spook shop. 
So I grew up, as many of us did on the West Coast, in this kind of military-industrial research world. And I chose to not make weapons. That was my intention going into medicine. Well, I appreciate that context. It is hard for someone on the outside to always see it clearly because it is such a tangled web. And I appreciate those little stories that we often don't hear because they do stack up to just seem like this is just a, a, a huge monolith of, of really dangerous stuff. And of course, for you personally, it would have been much easier to just hang out on the farm and not take all the smoke that has come your way. So I definitely appreciate you speaking out. And it seems a little bit like Western medicine at, with this operation has shattered any credibility they had. I now read uh, prescription drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. And who knows what kind of funny math is going on there or how much they actually contribute to those first two. And now the questions critics have always had about traditional vaccines are coming back up and people are wondering, well, if any of these shots and their adjuvants did cause problems like autism, would they tell us? If they did immunocompromised children, would they tell us? And I think we know the answer is no. So now we have this big counterculture move to holistic natural medicine, a rejection of petrochemicals for health, and a lot of people looking at things like terrain theory instead, a term I never heard three or four years ago. And the book you wrote asks the question, how do we restore trust? And I don't think we do. I think we create parallel systems with people who haven't lied to us over and over again. What are your thoughts on some of the parallel systems that are emerging and this resurgence of holistic terrain-based medicine as opposed to allopathic medicine? So we can go on for that for an hour. So to start with, just to give a shout out, there have been some odd anomalies that I've encountered because I've been traveling all over the world and speaking out and giving lectures and trying to help support other medical freedom communities in other countries. And that continues. I'm about to travel to Europe and then I'll be back and then back over to Vienna for another conference, et cetera, and bouncing around in the States. I mean, it doesn't stop. It's just nonstop. In these travels, two things have been very surprising to me. One is that the medical specialists, the hospitalists, which traditionally have thought to have been positioned as the thought leaders for the entire medical enterprise, have almost been completely compromised. And there's a, we could talk about how that has happened. It's kind of fascinating to get into the weeds of that. And it has been the generalists. It's been the primary care physicians, the integrative medicine specialists, you know, people like Dr. McCullough. Yeah that have been resistant, perhaps because they were like what's happened to me, they were already exposed to this machine of propaganda, censorship, a defamation, gaslighting. And so they were already sensitized to these tricks. The other community that's been surprisingly resistant to the propaganda has been the various religious communities all over the world 
And I think that's a combination of having shared spirituality. I think many of us have come through this more committed to um, spirituality and all that that means for the individual. But I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that they were communities, communities that maintain cohesion, despite all the efforts to break them up and to keep them from convening. And of course, California has been notorious for this, the shutting down of the churches. So these people that were previously considered to be at the fringes, outliers, not intellectually high-powered, primary care physicians, et cetera, and those that were osteopaths, even chiropractors, people that were already kind of out of the system, have been the ones that have really led in, for instance, early treatment. Of course, there's some exceptions. Peter McCullough is an example. And I think that that has been a real surprising finding. And what it's caused is a lot of us, including myself, I don't talk about this in the book, to go back and learn about the history of allopathic medicine and the role of the petroleum industry and DuPont and all of that in actively destroying the traditional medical school curriculum and structures that had existed at one point that were more, let's say, integrative and uh, substituting a new curriculum that was wrapped around petroleum-based drugs. And that's been a very lucrative industry. And it certainly contributed to human health. But as you correctly point out, it has given rise to a monster. That monster is now so large and so profitable that it functionally controls elections. It controls who gets elected. It dominates Washington, D.C. <coughs> Forgive the coughing. I picked up a nasty head cold in Mexico City last week. And I think that that has been another one of the big reveals is the need to go back to something more patient-focused rather than this industrialized, checklist-based medicine that we've seen deployed on all of us uh, which is coming out of the interface between government, the insurance industry, large pharma, and the hospital networks that basically control almost all physicians now. And they want a world that is de-risked. They want things to be algorithmic and simple so that you come into this system and you respond to a checklist and that checklist gets compared to some computer algorithm and out spits a diagnosis and a prescribed set of drugs that are approved in a treatment protocol. And you will take that treatment protocol or uh, you'll be kicked out of the system. And we've kind of seen that deployed now in a big way, and it's resulted in a massive number of avoidable deaths. So my impression is aligned with yours. And in particular, I point you to a chapter in that last section of the book that's focused on the better future. 
in which an organization that I've been privileged to be brought into, Apocrity Org, Apocrity being the Italian spelling for Hippocrates, in Italy, where physicians have been even more heavily censored, deplatformed, loss of license and practice privileges than they have in the United States. And they've still come together, formed a community, and even started now to set up their own medical school and set up a decentralized training programs based in towns and cities across Italy, where it's a more community-based operation. And they have training programs that go from general people like yourself that are not medically trained all the way through physicians. And they even have a program for de-specialization for these physicians that have kind of lost faith in the system and want to go back to practicing primary care. That's a different skill set than, you know, knowing how to operate a ventilator and being a pulmonary practitioner, for example. Mm -hmm. So Hippocrates gives us a vision and so does the World Council for Health and many of these other organizations that have popped up that is somewhat leaderless. It is more organic. These are intentional communities that are springing up all over the world in various different ways and different cultures that are starting to come together. And I think that that is the opportunity for a different future than the dark, centralized, globalist vision of the fourth industrial revolution and transhumanism, the fusion of man and machine and directed evolution and all those kinds of things. I think the alternative to that Harari Schwab, just to give two names, uh, dark vision, is a decentralized world. And the challenge that I confront in trying to help people as they're groping forward, you know, I didn't ask for this position of serving as a leader. It just kind of came to me. And since it came to me, I've been doing my best to try to do it well. But as you mentioned, I would just as soon be hanging out here on the farm uh, with my wife. But, you know, if you're called to do something and you're in your 60s, it's a gift, right? An opportunity to make a difference and to make the world a little bit better before you pass on and make it better for your children. So I find myself in this position and I'm doing my best to try to help people move towards a better future. And for I just mentioned that I got sick in Mexico City, just an upper respiratory head cold thing. But there I met with a broad swath of leaders from all over the world. It was an investor conference, but what I found and we had discussions about was that many of these people are leaders within their own small intentional communities. And we had some really stimulating discussions about how do we move forward from here? Mm -hmm. And my position is that in trying to do so, there are a number of traps that you encounter that force you back into the same kind of thinking that has led us to the problems that we have now. For instance, if you imagine 
that a way that intentional communities can link up to each other would involve some version, let's call it Web3, of the internet. And you try to imagine how that might be implemented. I'm going to go into the weeds just a little techie for a moment. If you imagine a Web3 like some do that employs blockchain to build lookup tables, basically address libraries that you can access that would point towards decentralized information storage that can be reassembled like in a bitstream type solution. Then you quickly find yourself in a position of, well, what about people that I'm going to just take another kind of shocking example, snuff films, you know, kitty porn snuff films. Okay. I think we can all agree that snuff films are off the table. They are not acceptable behavior. They should not be circulated. And they certainly shouldn't be stored on anybody's computer. But if we go to a decentralized information storage system so that it can't be controlled by the likes of Jeff Bezos, then we have a risk that somebody might put a fraction of a file that involves terrorist training or how to build a bomb or a snuff film, right? And none of us want to have that on our computers. So then quickly we find ourselves in a position where we have to have some form of censorship. And then it comes right back to the same issues because once we go down that road, what we've seen is it's a slippery slope and pretty soon some people might grab a hold of that and want to censor political speech, for example. There's many of these problem sets as you imagine a decentralized global structure. And what I come away with in grappling with this and talking to others is that In my opinion, anybody that believes that they know, that asserts that they know what the solutions are, is probably somebody that I don't really want to be engaging with. I think that we're going to have to figure out how to get to these solutions also in a cooperative fashion, in a decentralized fashion. I don't see how we can get to a decentralized solution model where you just have a few a think tank, you know, with academics or, you know, key thought leaders or whatever, all coming together in some conference and figuring out the solution. If we go there, we're going to end up exactly back where we are right now. So I think that's our challenge. And it's one that I'm looking forward to try to help people move towards is what is the process that we could use to create a decentralized world that we would all rather live in and that gives us the freedom and sovereignty and that we can pass along to our children as an alternative to this dark transhumanist centralized command economy world in which you will own nothing and be happy so they say (laughs) right right and looking at this covid crisis and the shots as just part of a larger technocratic control continuum, let's say, or transhumanist agenda or a little of both, how do we stay ahead of them? Because they're going to be crafty. They've gamed out a lot of this stuff. How do we anticipate their next move and not get caught up again? I mean, climate science seems like it's going to be a part of it, but even that's just a part of a larger whole. How do we stay ahead of them and anticipate their next move? So one of the things that I find amazing about the World Economic Forum is they're actually fairly transparent. 
Now, they hide a lot of what they do, just like Bill and Melinda Gates does. The term that's been bounced around is psychophilanthropy or psychotic philanthropy. They'll often hide their true motive behind pretty words about advancing humankind. And often those words are wrapped around Malthusianism based logic that there are only so many resources in the world and we have too many people. That's what gets to the depopulation and eugenics arguments that you were just touching on just a little bit. So I think we have learned that these people that meet in, you know, the Club of Rome and these various secret societies or organizations that hide their true agendas. I think we've learned that we should take their writing and their communication seriously. We should listen to what they're saying. We should listen to what Klaus Schwab said in this recent G20 summit, which if you listen to it, it sounds like the man is raving mad. But pay attention because he has the ear of the thousand largest corporations in the world and most of the world's economies. I think, I fear that they will have their way with us to a significant extent. They've been planning for decades, literally decades and decades. And they fully believe, I think, that their vision represents the future of humanity. And those of us that disagree are going to be hard pressed to not be impacted by their plans as we have been impacted over the last three years. I mean, if you want an example of both their power and their incompetence, the last three years provides a fantastic textbook and guide. Maybe that's one of the other values of the book. I think what we have to do sincerely is we have to fall back on intentional communities. This is what's happened so many times in human history, whether it's convents and monasteries or various forms of co-ops, community-based organizations, religious organizations. When the world enters into these times of turmoil and change. It's often small communities that self-assemble that can kind of carry the staff of humanity and knowledge and culture through these dark times. And I think personally, and you know, I've spoken, I had dinner with David Martin, discussed this, spoken with many people. I personally think that the only strategy that may be available to us is that of forming intentional communities, whether they're virtual or physical. So I, you know, the name of my substack is Who is Robert Malone? That's, of course, a very explicit reference to who is John Galt hmm. and Atlas Shrugged. 
And you may recall, if you read the book called Skulch, An Intentional Community. I think that we may find ourselves having to kind of hole up a little bit. And so no surprise that the prepper movement that used to be so discredited is now increasingly going mainstream as we're facing major food shortages, diesel shortages, et cetera, and economic turmoil. I mean, what we've seen is these people that have such massive economic power are strangely blind. Maybe it's because they live in their own little bubbles and they see a future that frankly, I think is grossly naive and unworkable. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be able to impose it in a significant way on all of us. They have so much economic power right now and political power. My friends in Canada, I'm just shocked by what they've been subjected to. Canada is functionally a client state of the World Economic Forum. The case can be made that's also true with New Zealand and to a significant extent, Australia. Right. And unfortunately, not to get political, but Mr. Newsom in your state is a trainee. He's a graduate of the five-year training program of the Young Leaders Program of the World Economic Forum. It's true. It seems like everybody is, but I, I am trying to get out of here as soon as I, I can, but yeah, it's uh, rough. Yeah. So Austin and Nashville are two destinations that many people go to. But yeah. So you can find on our nonprofit, MaloneInstitute.org, if you go there, you can download the most comprehensive spreadsheet of all of the young leader trainees, um, when they've graduated, who they are, what industries they work in, et cetera, et cetera. And in my opinion, these people are agents of basically a foreign government. It's a world government that's been assembled. And if I had my way, they would have to register as foreign agents if they're involved in U.S. politics. They are not representing the U.S. Constitution. They do not recognize and respect the Constitution and the independence of nation states. They believe that those boundaries of nation states should be dissolved. They believe in Agenda 2030. There in San Diego, you're very familiar with the illegal immigration, the border crisis, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You may not be aware that Agenda 2030, the UN agenda that has been adopted by the United States and many other nation states, specifically states that it is a fundamental human right to live wherever you want to live. It's no accident that these folks that believe in the globalist future in the United States, North America, and Europe, and elsewhere are actively enabling the dissolving of borders and the free immigration of peoples, which you know almost immediately destroys middle class wherever it happens. It's just written into Agenda 2030 as a fundamental human right. Mm -hmm. People have to kind of, you know, you've got two choices. You can wake up and start investigating yourself. Exactly. You know, I mentioned the book is just a pointer. It's just a little bit of a roadmap to get you started. 
There's so much information and detail out there. And I really caution, don't believe anybody anymore. I think it's really appropriate to become a skeptic. And I think the way forward is that people have to take ownership for themselves of thinking for themselves. If they want to be free, they have to take the responsibility to learn how propaganda is deployed and used, learn and understand these thought control technologies that are being used against them, mm-hmm. learn about what these plans are and what this globalist agenda is, and then try to find ways to make your way in the world and make a space for your children if you don't want to live in that world. Yes. If you don't if you don't like the idea of the business model, because that's what it is, of you will own nothing and be happy. If you don't like the idea that all resources need to be now concentrated into a much smaller number of companies owned by a smaller number of people and then allocated for the greatest good for the greatest number by a centralized governance body that's unelected, allocated in basically a rent-based model, just like you get your software now, right? You can't go and buy Adobe Photoshop anymore. You have to rent it. You don't buy Microsoft Office. You rent it, okay? They want to be in a world in which that holds for everything. You own nothing, and it's all controlled because the logic is that will make for more appropriate allocation of resources if they're the ones doing the allocating based on whatever their algorithms are. Right. And if you use their products in ways they don't agree with, they just revoke your ability to even rent it. And now we know that it doesn't even matter if you don't use their products in the way they don't want you to. Now it's to the point where if you say things that they don't want you to say, they will revoke it. Yes. They'll revoke your banking privileges. They'll revoke your access to capital etc, etc. Yeah, no, it's definitely getting rough. And you are right. Intentional communities seems like the move. You have a great section in the book about victory gardens and growing your own food, which I think is also good advice because we can't really get their hands off the levers of control. Seems like they've got everything pretty much compromised. So we have to do parallel type things. And I got one foot out the door, Texas or Florida, here I come. (laughs) I'm actually from St. Louis, which has its own history of spraying chemicals on poor, unsuspecting people. And it seems like you can't really escape it anywhere. We love life here in Virginia (laughs) as expat Californians. Virginia is purple and we have all the water we need. And our farm is up against the Shenandoah Mountains. Mm. Um, But it's also about an hour and 15 from Dulles Airport, which is what I have to jump in the car and go drive to, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you're good on the weed front too. So Anyway, I know you got the plane to catch. I appreciate you squeezing in some time for little old me. I think we covered a lot of important ground, and I'd recommend your book to anyone looking for an ironclad case that we've been had. The book isn't hard to find. You also are active on Substack. You mentioned MaloneInstitute.org. Is there anything else we should leave people with in terms of following up on your work or any links or anything you're going to be doing in the future? So the Substack is free if you wish to subscribe, as I mentioned, and that's rwmalonemd.substack.com. And I get feedback from a lot of folks that are getter feed because, of course, I'm deplatformed from Twitter and LinkedIn. 
but I've got about 425,000 followers on Getter. And I have people sending me stuff from all over the world all the time. I'm not a zero hedge, but a lot of people seem to find our Getter feed. So that's at RW Malone MD to be a useful way to kind of keep up to date with what's going on in, in the COVID world and in the WEF and all these other agenda items. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I know I'm just one of many podcasts, but you are the man. I appreciate you. The heat you've taken is no small thing. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. Thanks, Greg, and have a great day. Sadate, my damies, the great Dr. Robert Malone. I was certainly lucky to get this one. Unfortunately, I could only get 90 minutes of his time rather than the full two hours. This happens on rare occasion, and we do a 45-45 split, and it is what it is. Luckily, Howdy Mikoski went for almost three hours recently, so it balances out in the end. I do wonder how this one will be received, mixed, I'm sure. All feedback is going to be mixed with this number of people, but I myself certainly had times throughout the COVID crisis where I was very unsure of Dr. Malone. And I would guess that I'm not alone on something like that with an audience like this. But he understands manipulation and the deep state and narrative control as much as anyone, so I think he would understand the initial skepticism. In fact, I know he would. He's said it many times. It's not unexpected for some people to be skeptical of a guy who worked on the inside, but there should be something that you're looking for where they can pass the credibility test. And to me, it's saying exactly the kinds of things that Dr. Malone says. Do your own research. Think for yourself. He has full support for medical freedom. Calls out the World Economic Forum. He even says tinkering under the hood of humanity has something to do with their transhumanist goals. I consider some of that to be going actually a lot further than some of his colleagues. He really goes for it, and he peppered in so many little insights throughout this that I'm just happy to have had the opportunity. You guys know I like to go for the out there stuff, but hey, he said transhumanism before me. Let the record show. I also anticipate there will be some debate or shade thrown over the did he really create mRNA vaccines? Can he rightfully call himself the inventor? And I certainly did not want to bring that up because he's talked about it so, so, so many times. I've seen displayed his nine patents on this technology and my intro was so specific in its language because of this fact. It's kind of like who invented the internet? Well, there were stages, and it's not really just one thing. But also, if you know about these universities, they are really shitty about patenting stuff. They just say, oh, you developed it here, so we own it, not you. And you heard him. He mentioned the big old battle with the Salk Institute. And in my opinion, this whole he wasn't really the creator of the technology is part of the smear campaign against Dr. Malone. They would much rather have everyone debating if he is or isn't technically the inventor of the technology and just have him forget about what he's actually saying that's relevant to the current operation. But I think his book is very bold and honest and he builds his case in a way that I think it would be a great book to give to anyone who hasn't seen through it all yet. If we had had the full two hours, you know that I had a few more questions on deck, but I tried to go for the ones that you don't hear in every other interview of his.
Let's skip over the deep background. Let's skip over the COVID crisis play by play. And let's instead talk about how this operation folds into a larger plan and what comes next. And yes, in the Plus Show, I know I asked him about the UFO disclosure narrative thread that has also been woven through mainstream media and government over the last two years. Why was UAP disclosure to the Senate in the COVID relief bill if COVID is such a serious and specific issue? Why are those two things related at all? Well, once we're talking about transhumanism, it's worth folding that in because you could see how it might relate as a psychological layer that is pushing us into that more than human slash merge with machines direction. I know that part of it certainly sounds weird and it's a story that's just not over yet. So we will see where it goes and how it does relate. But I consider it something worth keeping in mind, and it's a badge of honor to hear him say that I asked him something crazy that nobody else has. He also said he regrets doing some of the podcasts he's done, and I definitely would hate to be on that list. So please be respectful if you do reach out to him. Let him know this was appreciated. Not a lot of our guests have websites where right on the front page you can download the raw data of anyone who's graduated from the WEF's Young Global Leaders Program, and that alone is a service to humanity. I also didn't really realize he had to work on the fringes of the industry well before COVID. I thought COVID was kind of a breaking of the ranks. Seems like I misinterpreted that. Also kind of funny that he heard my mention of San Diego and it clearly tailored this interview a bit, but that's a unique aspect of his own history and he's right that it is a big hub of the medical, military, industrial complex. It's more in the La Jolla UTC area rather than San Diego proper, but if you go driving through there, you'll see company after company invoking the gods as always, and it's surprising just how many there are. Right off the highway, you see a big, ominous corporate building for Illumina, and I was curious about that name, so I looked them up, and sure enough, they're a genetic sequencing company. I mean, you really are just taking the TI off of Illuminati, and that's your company name? Okay. And to take it a little bit further, I just went to their website, and their latest blog entry headline is, Illumina has become a powerhouse of the Chinese genomics industry. Partnerships announced and agreements signed at the China International Import Expo 2022 present key opportunities for growth. <laughs> provocative, provocative, right? And that's just one company. There are many, many other ones that have interesting names or invoke the gods or Egypt. There are tons of sunburst symbols and logos that encode the Eye of Ra or a sun disk, several pyramid logos, of course. Just the other day, I drove through there looking for a restaurant to go to with the kid, give her mom a break for a bit, and the place I found was in a huge building called Alexandria. And that was just a block down from a company called Prometheus Labs that operates out of a giant biotech lab complex called The Muse. And just around the other block is Poseida Gene Therapeutics with an I logo. And what's weird about that building, probably the most esoteric art installation I've ever seen in front of a corporate building, was something that I think they actually had removed. You can still find pictures of it online if you Google La Jolla Past and Future Statues. But there were these big biotech offices 
in like a U shape and in the center courtyard was a giant reflecting pool and in the middle of the water was a big classic Egyptian obelisk. And then on the left side was this guy in Egyptian clothing sitting on a throne holding a pyramid and staring at it like a puzzle he's trying to crack and it's labeled past. Now on the other side of the pool in an identical throne type chair is a more androgynous figure with a bald head I think one female breast and their body is made up more of like segments and it has a real sci-fi-esque look to it. And it's also holding a pyramid, but more up to the light, almost like the whole installation is to say, hey, this mystery that the Egyptians pondered in the past, we will crack wide open here sometime in the near future. It's weird, but I mean, Google it. I'm not making this up. This is how they chose to represent this complex. But all through that area, everything has biotech or genetics or labs in the title. There's companies like BioSpider Technologies, Trinity Biotech, Elucent Technologies with a Pyramid A in the name. And even just one called Pyramid Labs somewhere in Southern California. And would you believe it, there is literally a DNA sequencing company in San Diego called Roswell Biotechnology, as well as one called Foundations Medical with a big cube logo, of course. And I don't know anything about these specific companies, but we've done plenty of shows on the esoteric names and logos of companies plenty of times in the past, and companies in this particular space are even more interesting from that perspective. Clearly, I'm getting pretty far from the mark here, but it was interesting to hear him thread Southern California throughout this interview. I also really liked when he said the left-right division is outdated and the new lines are between the physicals, the digitals, the machines, and the overlords. That's a bit of an ominous thing to say, and I also think he's quite right. So, yeah, lots of good stuff in this one with a guest I consider to be pretty high level. Of course, if you liked the free first half, as always, the second half of these here interviews are for subscribers, either through the HiresideChats.com or through our Patreon. If you go through my website, though, you can start with a seven-day free trial, and if you're only interested in one or two shows, then you can get the full versions pretty easily without paying anything. How about that? Today's Plus Show got into Dr. Malone's thoughts on the deeper motivations for the COVID crisis cohorts. I asked the question of if they are fundamentally trying to change what a human is, and he said yes. Of course, he elaborated, but that is a bold answer in and of itself. We got into the UAP UFO disclosure story thing and how it might fit in. And then Dr. Malone talked a little bit about ancient advanced civilizations. Why would we have high society and primitive hunter-gatherers side by side? I guess you could say we do now, but it also seems to have been true way, way earlier than they say. We also got some of his intentional community tips and talked about some concerning elements of Agenda 2030 that might be coming down the pike. A little bit scary, but all good stuff. I hope to see you on the plus side. If you like the shows that I do, interviews only get weirder and more interesting with that extra time. Big thanks again to Dr. Malone. You can find him at Who is Dr. Malone on Substack or rwmalonemd.com. 
Of course, there is MaloneInstitute.org, a website that is just full of all the kind of information you would want. As I mentioned, the book is great too, and maybe if enough of you tell him you liked it, we can do it again down the line. And before we call it in, let's look at the calendar where anyone can make an event and find other like-minded people in their area. All you gotta do is go to HiresideMeetups.com and... This is the day before Thanksgiving, so no events in the immediate future, but on deck we have a Philadelphia meetup on December 3rd. Also, the conspiracy theorizers hanging out once again in High Springs, Florida on December 3rd. December 4th, people are meeting up at Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. December 8th, LA Truthers getting together again at the Flame International Restaurant. December 8th. 10th, we have a Long Island Conspiracy Bar Crawl, as well as the Grey Bull Wyoming Meetup and a Vancouver Washington Meetup. And <laughs> also on December 10th, the appropriately titled Anti Vaxmas 2 The Second Coming at Gilligan's Irish Pub in Glendale, California. And we will leave it at that. But that's quite a few events just for the first third of December. Thanks for using the calendar. I made it just so anyone could hop in there and find the others, make an event, and see what happens. It's free and easy, and I encourage you guys to do so. We might not always be able to convince the people in our traditional networks that the future looks a little bit dark. And it's good to have a few local people in your phone that don't need to be convinced. But that said, enjoy Thanksgiving. Be kind to people. We can wait to say I told you so until after the new year, right? <laughs> but I'm getting out of here because Thanksgiving is at my house this year. I've done my part. Your move, biotech transhumanists, WEF foot soldiers, and gene editing enemies of humanity. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a home, got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker. Protection of all 
is the special shelter built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, bunker. And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. 
informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.